Heavenly Father, I pray that you would uh, pour out your Holy Spirit on me and my words and on each of us and our hearts that we may receive the word that you have for us today and rejoice in what you are doing in restoring all things. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Dear friends, today my sermon kind of comes in two parts. The first part is an introduction to the book of Isaiah as a whole, because I think it's important for us to have the context of where this passage comes from. And as I look at the book of Isaiah, I'd actually love to do a whole uh, sermon series on it. I think that would be wonderful for us and edifying for us. And the second part is a, a deeper look into the, uh, the text itself, um, Isaiah 65. The book of the prophet Isaiah in the Old Testament is like a microcosm of the whole Bible. It's like a miniature version of the whole thing. Why do I say that? There's some remarkable similarities between the structure of the book of Isaiah and the structure of the whole Bible. And we're just going to have a look at some of those. First of all, Isaiah is very clearly divided into two parts. And for centuries, scholars have recognized that there's two very distinct parts in Isaiah. Um, the first one was most likely written by the prophet Isaiah himself. And the second part was most likely written by disciples or followers of the prophet Isaiah um, several hundred years down the track who had kept um, his words in the scroll and they were now um, exploring what God was doing in their new time. The first part of Isaiah has 39 chapters. And the second part has 27 chapters. And our Bible is also very clearly divided into two parts. We call them the Old Testament and the New Testament. And interestingly, I think this is kind of a God incidence. The Old Testament has 39 books and the New Testament has 27 books, exactly paralleling the division in the book of Isaiah. The first part of the book of Isaiah is messages of judgment and hope for Israel, God's people, as they sinned and as God worked to bring them back to himself. And the second part is the promise of renewal and restoration through a promised servant of God. Now, if you think about it, again, that sounds very familiar. It sounds exactly like the Old Testament, which is messages of judgment and hope for God's people as they stray away from him. And the New Testament, which is the story of the fulfillment of those promises through a chosen servant, Jesus. Isaiah contains some of the clearest prophecies of the Messiah, the coming anointed one, in all of the Bible. And particularly, Isaiah chapter 53 is a remarkable prophecy of what the Messiah would be like as the suffering servant of God. Um, it says that he would be rejected and despised, that he would take on the sins of the people, he would die... But by his death, he would justify many, and after his suffering, he would see the light of life. Death and resurrection. The suffering servant, Jesus, who atones for the sins of the world. But of course, Isaiah 53 was written centuries before Jesus arrived on the scene. And the only way that we could get such powerful predictive prophecy is if God is involved. If there are only five chapters in the entire Bible that you know and know where to find and read often, let Isaiah 53 be one of those five top most important chapters, I would say. Have a read of it 
at some point when you get home. It's stunning. Um, some of you may have seen the Facebook post that I put up about Isaiah 53 being read in Hebrew to Jewish people. It's quite remarkable. Lastly, in terms of the structure of Isaiah, the last two chapters of Isaiah, 65 and 66, contain a great vision of God's new heavens and a new earth, uh, of God's restoration of all things. And they are centered around a city called the New Jerusalem that God is creating. And interestingly, of course, the last two chapters of the entire Bible in Revelation 20 and 21 contain a great vision of a new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God and God creating new heavens and a new earth. So the symmetry there between the end of Isaiah and the end of the Bible is quite remarkable. Anyway, that's, that's a little bit of background. Isaiah is a remarkable book. It's like a microcosm of the Bible and it contains some of the great promises of hope and restoration and forgiveness through the Savior in all of Scripture. I'm just, I have a um, brief snippet of a, the Bible project uh, summary of the book of Isaiah, and I'm just playing the part that refers to these, these last couple of chapters uh, for you. Servants, which brings us to the final section of the book, 56 to 66, where the servants inherit God's kingdom. These chapters are beautifully designed as a symmetry that brings together all of the themes of the book. At the very center are three beautiful poems that describe how the spirit-empowered servant is announcing the good news of God's kingdom to the poor, and he reaffirms all of the promises of hope from earlier in the book. The new Jerusalem, inhabited by God's servants, will be the place from which God's justice and mercy and blessing flow out to all the nations of the world. And surrounding these poems are two long prayers of repentance, where the servants confess Israel's sin, and they grieve over all of the evil they see in the world around them. And so they ask God to forgive them, and that his kingdom would come here on earth as it is in heaven. Now, in each side of these prayers are collections of more poems that contrast the destiny of the servants with that of the wicked who persecute them. God says he's going to bring his justice on all who pollute his good world with their evil and selfishness and idolatry, and that he's going to remove them from his city forever. But the servants, those who are humble before God and who repent and own their evil, they are forgiven, and they will inherit the new Jerusalem, which, we discover, is an image for an entirely renewed creation, where death and suffering are gone forever. And this brings us to the very outer frame of this part of the book. In this renewed world of God's kingdom, people from all nations are invited to come and join the servants of God's covenant family so that everyone can know their creator and redeemer. And so the book of Isaiah ends with the very grand vision of the fulfillment of all of God's covenant promises. Through the suffering servant king, God creates a covenant family of all nations who are awaiting the hope of God's justice and bringing a renewed creation, where God's kingdom finally comes here on earth as it is in heaven. And that's the very powerful hope of the book of Isaiah. And thanks be to God, we are part of that covenant family of all nations that God has called to himself through his suffering servant. So we are part of that vision and part of the fulfillment of those promises. So now to look and focus uh, reasonably briefly at this wonderful poetic vision of Isaiah chapter 65 of God creating a new heavens and a new earth. 
And I want to zero in on a, a few of the words that appear over and over in this passage. Let me read some of those parts to you. God says, See, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I create, for I will create Jerusalem to be a delight and its people a joy. I will rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people. The sound of weeping and of crying will be heard in it no more. So first of all, here is this word create. Now, this word create in Hebrew is bara. It's only ever used of God. It's only something that God can do. And it's God creating something new, something that has continuity with what came before. As we read in Revelation, God doesn't say, behold, I am creating all new things, right? He doesn't wipe out what's been and and make a completely new thing. He says, behold, I am creating all things new. Again, it's a little bit like the restoration work that is done on my mini. Excellent. Yvette, your alarm has just gone off at the time is, no, don't be sorry. I wanted this to happen. The time is... 10.02, and what is the alarm for? To pray for? Luke 10 verse 2 says, pray for the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest fields. And I was hoping that someone's alarm would go off and interrupt me today so that I can tell everyone to set your phone for 10.02. Yvette, would you pray uh, for harvest workers, please? Thank you. Amen. Okay, if you haven't set your phone alarm for 10.02 yet, that's a really good catalyst to do that. God says, I will create all things new. God is restoring this broken world, making it even better than it was before sin came along and spoiled uh, the world that he had created. He says, there'll be no more weeping or crying. And the book of Revelation says that in the new heavens and new earth, there'll be no more weeping or mourning or death or crying or pain. So, very similar vision that we get here from Revelation and from Isaiah. Secondly, this word delight. God says, I will create Jerusalem, which is a picture of God's renewed people, to be a delight and its people a joy. God will take delight over his people. God's joy is in you. And you might find that hard to believe at times. When things are tough or when it seems like God is far away, it's easy to forget that God delights over his people. My daughter, Sylvia, just finished year 12. She just finished all of her exams on Monday. And I, as a father, I am deeply proud of her. I delight in her. She's done well. She's worked hard. And... I love to look at the young woman that she is becoming and go, you are a delight to me. I don't actually say it in those words because that would be like really weird and awkward. But internally, I delight in Sylvia and that's what God does in us. And sometimes we forget that God delights in us as his children. He goes, oh, Margaret, I delight in Margaret. She's my daughter. She's beloved. I love her so much. And for each one of us, and for us as a community, God delights in his people. 
I wonder what it's like to live conscious of the delight of God, knowing that God rejoices over you, that he loves you so deeply. Then this word joy and rejoice and take delight. God says in verse uh, 18 of Isaiah 65, be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. God actually commands his people to rejoice in what he is doing. He says, take joy in this. This is good. Celebrate it. Down in verse, uh, verse 22, God says, as the days of a tree, so will be the days of my people. So that's long, long, fruitful life. And he says, my chosen ones will long enjoy the work of their hands. Think about your work, if, if you are working. For those of us who are not working, it's a real, sometimes it can be a real downer, it can be a real drag on our spirits not to have work. For those of us who are working, though, sometimes our work can be, oh, David is retired. He's saying, no, it's good not to have work. <laughs> is that right? <laughs> How many of you have ever experienced your work in your working life as drudgery? Like, oh, no, it's Monday morning. I've got to, got to get up and go to work. I'm so weary. I'm so tired. It's just so busy. Has anyone ever, ever experienced that? Yeah, Edward's saying yes, and Gary's saying yes, and Nick and Mitch, particularly working the midnight shift at McDonald's, you know, sometimes. Work in God's new creation is not drudgery. It's not something that drags us down, but it's actually a fruitful and joyful way of us joining with God in his restoration of all things. God says, my chosen ones will long enjoy the work of their hands. They will not labor in vain. In the new heavens and the new earth, after Jesus comes and all is restored, we will have work to do, but it will never be frustrating work. It will be joyful work as we join in with God in his continued restoration of all things. It won't be futile work. It won't be labor in vain. It won't be like getting to the end of the day or to Friday afternoon and going, oh, I'm just so exhausted that I need my weekend just to recover. It will be a beautiful thing. And we get to do work restorative work with God in his kingdom. So on the other hand, who in their work has ever seen glimpses of joy and moments where you have gone, yes, this is good. I have achieved something and I have achieved something that is good, not just for me, but for other people. Has anyone ever had that experience? Excellent. I hope you all have, because that is a glimpse. Oops is like in the renewed heavens and the renewed earth. Just a glimpse. Okay, this, this vision, this poetic vision of God's new heaven and new earth includes an intimate relationship with God. God says in verse 24 of Isaiah 65, he says, Before they call, I will answer. And while they are still speaking, I will hear. You hear that? That's, that's a relation of intimacy. That's a relationship where our Heavenly Father knows us so deeply and so intimately that he is answering our needs even before we begin to call to him. 
while they are still speaking, I will hear. God says that in the new heavens and the new earth, there'll be no destruction, there'll be no harming. And we look at those uh, words, and they're, they're quite famous words. The wolf and the lamb will feed together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The dust will be the serpent's food. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, says the Lord. Now, remember that this is poetic. It's, it's a poetic vision. It's not necessarily the literal truth. Will, will lions become vegetarians in God's new creation? I'm not actually sure. But what is clearly being said here is that there won't be destruction. There won't be harm. There won't be the brokenness and the suffering and the destruction that we see in our world right now. There won't be things that impact on people and on animals like we, for instance, see the bushfires in New South Wales and Queensland. It's quite possible that those things will still be there because eucalyptus oil will still be flammable in God's new creation, but it won't harm or destroy. And, and I, I can't quite get my head around that. You know, you can sense here that the language that the poet is using is kind of bearing the weight of something that is bigger than words can actually say. The, lion, the wolf and the lamb will feed together and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The dust will be the serpent's food. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, says the Lord. So how? How will all this come about? This prophecy, this poetic vision of Isaiah was written several hundred years before the coming of the suffering servant. But it is that suffering servant of Isaiah 53 who will bring about God's new creation. It's the one who's despised and rejected and who takes on the sin of the people and who dies and rises again, who brings about God's restored creation. I'd just like to quickly uh, flick back to Isaiah chapter 25, verse 6 and 7, because I think this makes, makes it very clear for us how God will bring about this restoration. Isaiah 25, verse 6 and 7 says... On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. How good does that sound? How good is God's banquet, to misquote Scott Morrison? But he goes on to say, On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. Do you see that? On this mountain, the mountain of Zion, the mountain of Jerusalem, the mountain where Jesus was crucified, it says he will swallow up death forever. He will remove destroy the shroud that enfolds all people and the sheet that covers all nations. So through his servant who dies and rises, God will overcome death and destruction and bring about a renewed and restored creation. And one of the most remarkable things about this poetic vision from Isaiah chapter 65 and 66 is that salvation and the new Jerusalem are actually open to all nations not just the Jews who at this time when this was written were considered to be God's chosen people, but to all the nations. 
Let me read a couple of uh, verses from Isaiah chapter 66. This is, the, remember, the last chapter of the poetic vision um, of the book of Isaiah. 66 verse 19 to 21. Islands that have not heard of my fame or seen my glory will proclaim my glory among the nations. And they will bring all your people from all the nations to my holy mountain in Jerusalem as an offering to the Lord on horses, in chariots and wagons, and on mules and camels, says the Lord. They will bring them as the Israelites bring their grain offerings to the temple of the Lord, sorry, in ceremonially clean vessels. And I will select some of them also, the nations, that is, to be priests and Levites, says the Lord. I look around our smallish church community and I see people from Hong Kong and Taiwan, from South Africa and Sudan, from Australia and various other places. And I rejoice in a tiny little sliver of God's salvation and restoration for all the nations. All the people, everyone can come to God, into his new creation, through the work of the suffering servant who dies to defeat death and who rises to bring new life. In Jesus' name, amen.